0: You might find it rare to be enthralled with each book that a writer writes but it's actually not that rare for readers of Geraldine Brooks and I count myself among them in her new book horse she gives us another masterful recounting of a corner of history this time introducing us to Lexington one of the most significant thoroughbreds of the 19th century with a bloodline that runs through today at the same time As with all of her books, it's about something else. We encounter slavery, the Civil War, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and how the legacy of all of this also runs through today. I had the pleasure of speaking with Geraldine at Books and Books, the morning following a live and in-person event held at the bookstore the night before. Welcome to The Literary Life, Geraldine Brooks. It's so wonderful to see you live and in person and to be celebrating uh, the publication of a new book at the bookstore, of all places, uh, like we did last night.
1: Thank you, Mitchell. It's so great to be back here. I cannot tell you. It's like reuniting with my tribe after three years in the wilderness.
0: Oh, I know. You know, and, and, and... as I said last night, this is our 40th year, and I remember so vividly all the times that you and Tony would come down, uh, either for the bookstore or the book fair. Could you talk a little bit about your early memories of the Miami that you might remember? or What, a, what might have appealed to you about Miami in those days?
1: Oh, of course, yes. So I remember coming here for um, foreign correspondence and speaking at Books and Books when it was in the smaller premises. And then every year we would come back and you, you were so phenomenal because you were always getting, um, under pressure from all the changes in the book business. And I remember there was the year that Barnes and Noble decided to set up right on the opposite corner <laughs> And you drove them into the ground, which you know it just restored my faith in readers that you were able. To it's
0: do. true. I mean, we would not be able. You know, breeders and writers. I mean, we would. We're in a very unique business because we have the support of writers as well as our natural support of our customers in this community, and we'd never be able to survive without all of that. Mm-hmm. And 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 the book fair was had a lot to do with it. And I know that what was very cool for me at the book fair. Was to see you guys, you know, in that author hospitality suite and then see everyone who knew one another. Oh, yeah! And you guys would run into all of these different people at the same time.
1: And make time. new connections, too. I mean, one of my, uh, my great gratitudes to the my I mean, book pair was that I came down here with Tony when Tony had just published um, Confederates in the Attic. And I met Charles Frazier, who wrote one of my favorite historical novels, called Mountain. And just talking to him made me think, I, I am wasting my time in nonfiction. I have to write a novel. And so I went home and started Year of Wonders.
0: Well, if that's all that the legacy of the Miami Book Fair produces, that's enough. That's a really wonderful <laughs> Dianu. thing. Dianu. exactly. <laughs> And the new novel, your new novel is Horse. And in fact, you talk very, it's a very funny, you have a comment in there that I think it's in the, uh, in the afterword. It's really cool. You say something about, uh, that you started writing Horse with Tony's encouragement because He hadn't been crazy about your previous novelistic plunge into myth and biblical history.
1: That's right. He was not a fan of the secret code because he's still suffering PTSD from his (laughs) vomits.
0: As we all are, actually. (laughs) I still can't dance because of that. (laughs) But... You know, Horse is an amazing, remarkable book. I lived with it. I couldn't put it down for two straight days, and I'm still living with all the characters. It's uh, quite remarkable. How did Horse come about? Talk a little bit about that.
1: It was one of those incredibly serendipitous events. I, I was at a lunch at Plymouth Patuxet Museum, uh, in 2011, they'd been super helpful to me in researching *Caleb's Crossing*, which is set, you know, during the uh, first encounters of uh, English settlers with the Wampanoag people in New England. And uh, they had invited me back, and um, they had in mind to pitch me a idea for a novel. And the only trouble with that pitch was it was the same novel I'd just written. (laughs) It was about a young uh, Calvinist girl in the early settlement, and you know I lived in the head of a Calvinist girl for five years, and enough already. So, um, so I was just nodding and smiling politely. But the other guest at the lunch was um, a man called Harold Closter, who was in charge of all the Smithsonian's affiliated museums. And he had come there directly from the International Museum of the Horse, where he had delivered a skeleton from the Smithsonian in Washington uh, to be the centerpiece of an exhibit on why Kentucky became the center of thoroughbred racing in America. And it all came down to this 19th century racehorse old lexington and as he told the story of this remarkable 19th century racehorse i was like could you shut up about that girl because i just need to hear about this horse and the horse uh broke all the speed records but had an incredible personality and courage and um they was was such a celebrity that everybody followed this horse and Presidents and General Custer would make pilgrimages to visit him. You know, he was a rock star horse in, in the day. And then when when um, Harold got up to talking about what had happened during the Civil War involving this horse, I just knew it was a story for me.
0: It's so interesting to me. Pretty much um, comes from uh, another another uh, another quote that you have from. Um, from Mark Twain, where you go, fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't.
1: Exactly. So it's the implausible truths that I love, these things from the historical record. If you made them up as a novelist, it wouldn't be very interesting. Uh, But because they're true, it is fascinating. And in this book, Horse, the story goes in so many unexpected directions. When I set out to write about a racehorse I didn't know that it would connect with Jackson Pollock and the abstract expressionist movement of the 1950s. I didn't know anything about the science at the Smithsonian and how that works and how improbable the work they do on bones is and what bones can tell you, what stories they tell, and all the different um, historical figures who were connected with this horse. um, it, it became a very different and much richer book than what I had imagined.
0: And is that part of what you enjoy about writing historical novels? Is the research and about learning about something new that maybe you didn't know about?
1: I love the research. I think it's the old newspaper reporter in me. I love the excuse to bother people about their their business. You know, call up people and say, "How could you? What could you tell about?" Um, why a horse went blind so I talked to veterinarians all over the world and and people get really into the project you know speculating with you about these things because you know people who have these jobs love to talk about them and I just had the best time going back to the Smithsonian and talking to scientists about their research and then you know delving into all the other various nooks and crannies that this book took me
0: You know I've heard you speak beautifully about, how you approach fact versus what it is you're making up?
1: Yeah, I want to find. Um, I want to. I want to follow the line of fact as far as I can, and if I can follow it a little bit further than anyone's followed it before, that's a win for me. I love to add my little grain of sand to the sandbox of knowledge, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes, if you're really persistent, you can find out a little bit more of the historical truth. But I also, at that moment when the voices fall silent and the threads that you can follow just fray away to nothing, that's when I give myself the license to imagine how it might have been.
0: And But it has to also start, I'm sure, with with a broad interest. So the idea of the horse, when you were listening to it, you have your own connection to horses, is well Yes, right?
1: this came along at a very opportune moment <laughs> for me because I am a late-life pony girl. Um, horse, horses were not something that was available to me in my childhood. We lived in the inner city in Sydney, and we didn't have a lot of spare money for anything really uh so I didn't even fantasize about that Uh, I didn't read horse books or anything of that nature and the only horses we ever saw were the mounted police where my mother would run out and see if there was any manure dropped in the middle of our busy road because then she'd go out and scoop it up with the dustpan and use it on her rose bushes (laughs) so that was horses but then in in middle age I uh I went for a trail ride and it was such a euphoric experience and came home and the next thing I knew I had a horse in the backyard (laughs) and it was bankrupting me these are very expensive animals and uh, I wasn't getting any work done because all I wanted to think about was the horse and uh, and then luckily this idea came along at exactly the right moment so I was able to combine my working life with my new passion
0: So let's talk about the horse. I mean, you know, I'm not a big follower of horse racing, so I was not aware of Lexington. But I know that there were people last night who were regaling you with stories of all of his... uh, progeny even today that are racing
1: but it isn't well known it's not a well-known story which is catnip for a novelist actually i was i i I would ask everybody have you ever heard of this horse and when they said no i would do a little happy dance because (laughs) i i wanted to be the one to reintroduce this fantastic story to people but he is he is very known to people who follow horse breeding because he was The most significant stud sire in American thoroughbred history, he led uh, the stud sire list for sixteen years, um, which means that he, his his sons and daughters won more races than any other horses.
0: And and this is at a time in the mid, you know, right right pre Civil War Mm. and a little bit after the Civil War you know, before everyone had heard of the Kentucky Derby and all of that. It was that before the
1: Kentucky Derby existed. In fact, the first Kentucky Derby was won by a son of Lexington, oh, is Aristides. That right? Oh, that's yes. right. That's right.
0: <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, and you're right about this book because <laughs> I never thought I'd be reading a book about a thoroughbred that would then have a connection to the all of the abstract expressionists of the 50s, as well as everything else that you brought into. And you say something really interesting, which, which I think was so poignant. Uh, you talk about the fact that when you were doing research about a horse, about a racehorse, uh, you knew that, th- once you started doing your research, you knew that this novel also needed to be a novel about race.
1: That's right, because all of the people who were most instrumental in the success of this horse and all the other thoroughbreds uh, of the 19th century were black and many of them were enslaved or formerly enslaved and as soon as you start to be aware of that story and the unusual position that these men occupied uh, in this industry which was an enormous generator of wealth for the white owners and also an, an absolute obsession with uh, almost the entire population of America at that time and it was all built on the plundered skill and labor of black horsemen. And yet their story had been pretty much erased for more than a century. And it's only now that historians are turning to unearthing the contribution of these men.
0: And, and the contemporary story mirrors that.
1: Well, and then I had the realization. I knew I was going to have a contemporary story running along with the historical spine of the book, as it were, because uh, I was so interested in the science and the sciences around the bones of this horse that were at the Smithsonian for such a long time and what stories bones can tell, um, what we can learn from them. And then also the art, because the horse was painted many times and how you assess a work of art. And uh, so I knew I was gonna be in the present and I realized that it would be completely wrong and unethical to treat the story of racism as though it was something over and done with because it's so not over and done with. And it was, um, at the time I was writing this book, it was the jackhammer outside the window every day as we learned about George Floyd, as we learned about Ahmed Ar- Arbery, as we learned about Breonna Taylor and all the other people whose names we don't know as well, but who are still suffering from this unfinished legacy.
0: Yeah, and and the way you tie that together is so potent in so many ways, and I thank you for it. But to talk about some of the characters that were based on real people Mm. uh, is fascinating. I mean, I didn't know Cassius Clay, for instance, was named after another Cassius Clay.
1: Right, so the uh, Cassius Clay for whom Muhammad Ali was originally named, was an extraordinary larger-than-life character who happened to have a strong connection to my horse, um, which is something I couldn't possibly have known until I started to research it. But he was married to the daughter of the man who bred the horse. And Cassius Clay was a member of the largest and one of the wealthiest slave owning families in Kentucky, but he went away to college in the north and came back as an ardent emancipationist and he freed all all his own slaves and then he uh, started a newspaper called the true american in which he argued not only against the inhumanity of slavery as an institution but also for the negative economic impact that he believed it was having on the south and that was real popular in Kentucky, as you can imagine. So uh, he had he survived three assassination attempts, one of which involved a guy coming at him, shooting him in the chest, and he didn't go down. He pulled his bowie knife and, and cut the guy to pieces. So he was really something.
0: And then he... he he had a daughter who then became a very significant figure in the suffragette and women's movement. He
1: did. Well. He had a number of daughters who did that, but um, yeah. Mary Mary Barclay was the um, the most prominent of them. And she um, she became uh, an ardent feminist uh, after Cassius went off to um, be the ambassador for Lincoln to the court of the Tsar in Russia. And while he was there, he had an affair with a ballerina when he came back Um Uh, Mary Jane Warfield his wife was underwhelmed by this (laughs) sent him to sleep in the unheated attic and uh, the marriage broke up and in those days women got nothing so she left that marriage having managed the estate for almost a decade while he'd been away quite brilliantly and keeping everything going during the war. She, she was left with nothing. And her daughters were so outraged by this, they became ardent feminists and suffragists.
0: Yeah. And who would have thought that Jesse James would make an appearance?
1: Jesse James, yes. So, yeah, no. Uh, when we get to the Civil War, Kentucky's position in the Civil War was quite precarious because even though they were technically on the Union side, many, many of the citizens of Kentucky were confederate sympathizers and they were um, a place where murderous bands of radical irregulars came and stole horses and created mayhem and did all kinds of brutalities and killings and one was the band of quantrell who is absolutely notorious for his bloodthirsty ways and the james brothers including jesse rode with him
0: The character of Lexington's trainer, uh, who became his trainer, Mm -hmm. the the kid who stayed with him the whole time, Jarrett. Jarrett, yeah. And and he's an amalgam of a few people.
1: So Jarrett, there was a Jarrett. We know that because there's a painting of Lexington in his old age and the title of the painting is Lexington being led out by, quote, Black Jarrett, his groom. And that painting is missing. I hope it turns up sometime, it's by an artist called Thomas Scott who painted the horse many times and uh, this was supposed to be the best painting he ever did of the horse but we don't know where it is. But I became intrigued with the idea of Jarrett because I know as a horsewoman now that the people who have the strongest bond with the horse are not the owners or the trainers, it's the person who's mucking out the stall and brushing the horse and bringing the feed. And that's where the real bond of trust and affection lies. And so I wanted that person to be at the center of the novel. And in a way, it's kind of a love story between this young man and the horse. the
0: horse. No, it's beautifully rendered, beautifully told. Tell me a little bit about what you had to do in terms of, because you, you paint such a good picture of what life was like pre-Civil War, the difficulties, the interactions of people and then post-Civil War, in the Reconstruction period as well. Was there a lot of reading that you had to do in order to get a feel for all of that?
1: Yeah, I did, but, you know, I was so lucky because I'd, I started this book with a lot of help from Tony Horwitz, who is a Civil War obsessive and who has one of the most impressive <laughs> Civil War libraries. In fact, I'm looking for a place to donate his Civil War library, so if anybody knows, a place that would welcome... I think he's got just about every significant book.
0: I think I think Confederacy of Duns, uh,
1: uh in the attic. I mean, Confederates in the attic.
0: Confederates of <laughs> I think um, I think Confederates in the attic put put my kids through preschool at the time huh. that it came out. It it was so wonderfully done.
1: It's still being used in schools, which is wonderful. But he didn't stop there, you know, he wrote a fantastic book about John Brown called Midnight Rising and then his last book. Uh, spying on the south right. we had a lot of crossover actually we were actually working on projects that intersected because um, spying on the south is about the travels of frederick law Olmsted before he became the landscape architect of central park and so many other wonderful places he was a newspaper reporter just like tony was and his his assignment was to travel through the south right before the civil war and ask why is our nation so divided and what can we do about it and so Tony was redoing that journey and asking the same question in our own period of division Where where do you
0: think Tony's interest in the South came from?
1: He says it was because his grandfather who was a Jewish immigrant who arrived in this country so penniless that he slept on two chairs he didn't even have a bed and lived on peanuts literally he ate peanuts and um But one of the first things he bought was a lavishly illustrated book of photographs of the Civil War. And Tony remembers sitting on his lap and going through this book. And it was an interest he also shared with his father. And, you know, he often wondered why did this penniless immigrant spend this money on this book and he thinks it was a way to understand this new country that he'd come to because it is such a fundamental um part of the of the history of this place. So that's what Tony how Tony explained his um obsession.
0: Yeah, because it came a little bit late. I mean you were traveling the world as foreign correspondence. yes well. so
1: i didn't know what i'd got myself into because <laughs> we were 11 years essentially on the road first in australia and then cairo and london and then finally tony said you know i really need to get back home and water my roots a bit so we came back and we we set up shop in a little village in rural virginia and i realized i would made a big mistake because um there's a saying that the civil war was fought in 10,000 places, and it soon became depressingly obvious to me that he was going to take me to every single
0: one. <laughs> 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 That's. That's a great story. Uh, but you
1: were talking about, you know, what happened after the Civil War, and it, it's it's beyond the scope of the book to a certain extent, but it sort of explains why we don't know about the incredible talented Black horsemen uh, and and their integral role. Uh, is because after reconstruction came the reaction, which was Jim Crow. And all these talented jockeys who'd been really celebrated and the trainers were all pushed out of the thoroughbred industry. And that, it it was heartbreaking because many of them left the country to pursue their skills and craft. And others just died in abject poverty, um, and it was it was done very brutally. In the case of the jockeys, where the white jockeys would gang up against a black rider and and put them in danger during a race, and so um, so that's that's why the the story isn't as appreciated as it should be.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that that I think for me was the beauty of this book as well. It, the beauty of most of your books is that. You know, it, it got me going to look things up that I just didn't know anything about. And the
1: gateway drug to it, real history. <laughs> it,
0: no, it absolutely is. And then you realize just how limited our history really is our knowledge of history and what's presented to us. And unfortunately, some of our politicians, particularly in this state, are trying to clamp down even further on it.
1: Oh, I know. It's, It's amazing to me, you know, and particularly given that this was Tony's muse, is why do we elevate certain myths and bury certain truths
0: Completely, the whole idea of, of, of myth making.
1: I know we can't. You know we have to. We have to grow up. We have to accept the history of this country as it is, and all the ugly and dark parts. If we don't come to terms with them, and the idea that you can just edit that out and just have the heroic stuff, it's such BS.
0: And, and trying to close, shut people's eyes, or what? I think we're going to be fighting for for a while now, mm. given what's been going on. Yeah. There, there is something else I wanted to bring up, which was also a revelation to me, and that is the, the, the true scope of the Smithsonian.
1: Oh, Because yes. you
0: have Jess, who's in the contemporary story, who happens to be Australian, but she comes to work at the Smithsonian in this department that is, un- I never heard of it,
1: actually. So it is the most fantastic place. It's called the Museum Support Center, and it's out in suburban Maryland. And it's huge. It's absolutely vast. It's miles literally of labs and storage areas. And you know, they call the Smithsonian the Attic of America. Well, the support center is the Attic's Attic. (laughs) (laughs) And 90% of the collections are out there. And so you're out there and you're in a really high-tech lab and you're discussing some kind of cutting-edge science with a either a, a zoologist or somebody who's into art preservation or, you know, other aspects. Um, and in the corridor outside, it's very hard to maintain your focus because the things that are going by in the corridor, you know, a triceratops head will be going in one direction and a beautiful Dutch – Old master's painting will come by in the other direction, and then a Chinese palanquin for a bride in the um, in the 14th century. <laughs> it's just, it is, it, it is a treasure house.
0: And in terms of, uh, you know, physical specimens of animals and other things, I didn't really understand the notion of articulation. I didn't really understand it in that context.
1: So yeah, this is what uh, they do um, when they're preparing bones. Uh, articulation is making the skeleton back to show what the animal was like uh, when it lived and moved and they don't do it as much anymore it was it was a huge thing in the in the 19th century it was an absolute passion to show uh, really elaborate articulated skeletons so there's a very famous one of a man and a rearing horse. So you've got a human skeleton and then the horse skeleton, and it's articulated to show the movement of the bones as the horse rears. Um, But these days, it's a little frowned upon because if you mount bones, you have to destroy tissue Mm. as you put in the screws and whatnot. So now they're more interested in preserving bones for their scientific um, resources. recently DNA research and then there might be something in 50 or 100 years from now that you can extract knowledge that we don't even know about yet as people didn't know about DNA in the 19th century so that's fascinating too
0: it's hard it was hard for me not to think that maybe Jess was close to you in some way
1: oh yeah no <laughs> Jess, Jess was my uh, my little um, my little little uh, moment of novelistic laziness because i had so many characters that i had to research so extensively to make sure i was getting them right so i thought i'll just make this i'll make this woman australian and i'll give her all my childhood nerdy proclivities <laughs> and so she's she's very she's very close to me she's sort of slightly awkward and a little weird
0: <laughs> yeah. no and her relationship with theo is really natural and really beautiful and uh, um it, it, and you capture him really well too. About what a art historian, the role of the art historian as well. I love this book. I wonder if you could give a couple of recommendations on. Uh, I know that you did last night, and I was fascinated by them. Books that were written maybe about horses or oh, things yeah. that you might recommend to people.
1: So yeah, I've got a couple of horse books that I absolutely love. Um, Uh, Sarah Maslin-Near, who is a a very notable investigative reporter on The Times, has a side hustle as a horse obsessive, and she has written a terrific memoir called Horse Crazy. Um, I love Jane Smiley's books about horses, particularly my favourite, I think, is Horse Heaven. Um, And I love Xenophon's book on horsemanship. It's just a, a slender extended essay really but you read it and it's totally actionable information on how to choose and handle a horse and it it stresses kindness and trust and it's so modern seeming, and you're reading this thing, and you're nodding along, and then he, and then you get to the bit where he describes how you use your javelin to mount your horse, <laughs> and you realise, oh my god, this is the guy who studied with Socrates. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it does speak to the enduring bond between people and horses.
0: And as a historical novelist, are there are there is there anyone who, you know, is the kind of North Star for you?
1: I would say Hilary Mantel, her Wolf Hall trilogy. That was so exhilarating to watch a classic being created in your own lifetime. I think those books will absolutely endure. They're so wonderful. And then my favorite American historical novel is by Brian Hall. And it's about the Lewis and Clark expedition. And it's called I Should Be Extremely Happy in Your Company which comes from a letter that Meriwether Lewis wrote to Clark when uh, they were setting out on this endeavor. And it's told in different voices of the people on the uh, on the expedition. And it is just a masterclass in voice, I think.
0: Well, I hope bookstores all across the country are now going to have to stock all of these, <laughs> which I'm hoping for. The other thing I think that you've done, and you'll have to read the book to find out why, but I, I think you're going to start a mess. Stampede to garage sales all over the all over the country.
1: (laughs) Well, quite, and you know, um, well, it's not really a spoiler because it's right at the beginning of the novel. But and and like other things in this book that seem unlikely, it is true. So I'm not going to say anymore. (laughs) We don't
0: need to say anymore. Uh, Geraldine Brooks, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank
1: you Mitchell for having me, it's so great to be back at Books and Books.